Good evening, everyone. On behalf of the LSE's International Humanitarian Law Project and the Crisis States Research Centre, I welcome you to this very important event, and I think the first evening public event of the new uh, term. So thank you for coming out uh, tonight. My name is Margot Salman. I'm a lecturer here at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, and it's my great pleasure to be chairing this evening's uh, lecture on meeting the new humanitarian challenges of the 21st century. To discuss the pressing issues to which this topic gives rise, we are very fortunate to have with us both Sir John Holmes, United Nations Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator, and Professor James Putzel, who is the Director of the Crisis States Research Centre here at the LSE. Humanitarian needs today are many and diverse and multifaceted. The responses required are no less complex. They address ongoing and highly political conflicts such as those in Iraq and Sudan. Civil conflicts such as those in Sudan, Somalia and Iraq have seen increased attacks on humanitarian workers. Whilst so prolonged, nature has contributed to high, extremely high levels of displacement with IDPs in Kenya a result of a very particular uh, recent phenomenon post-election uh, violence. Certain humanitarian crises today come as a result of not only the impact of climate change, as severe weather patterns in Central Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa have shown, but as a result of mitigation strategies. Everywhere there is debate as to what role biofuels are playing in the current food price rises, which of course contribute directly to hunger and to malnutrition in many parts of the world, as well as increase the cost of food that the UN requires to distribute to those most in need. Food insecurity also increases instability, with conflicts sparked or prolonged by competition over scarce resources already on the rise. With these very brief and indeed quite somber words, allow me to begin by introducing Sir John Holmes, whom I hope can share with us some solutions in the next 30 for 40 minutes. In January 2007, Sir Holmes was appointed UN Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs. Prior to joining the UN, he was British Ambassador to Portugal and then to France. During his diplomatic career, Sir Holmes has lived and worked in Moscow, in Delhi, and has been involved in the Middle East peace process, as well as in the Northern Ireland peace process and Good Friday Agreement. He was awarded a knighthood in 1999 for his work on Northern Ireland. Please join me in welcoming him warmly. Well, thank you very much indeed for, for the introduction. I'm not sure I'm going to be producing many solutions, but I can certainly describe lots of problems to you. Uh, and thank you very much for all for coming along this evening. This is the first time I've ever been to LSE. So this is uh, a first for me as, probably, as well as probably for you. Um, somebody once told me when I was um, a young diplomat that the art of speech making was, was very simple. You had to tell the audience what you're going to tell them, tell them it, and then tell them what you told them. So um, I'll at least obey the first of those um, uh, orders by telling you roughly what I'm going to tell you, which is I thought I'd uh, try and explain first of all um, very briefly what we do and where we do it and why. And then, uh, I'll give one or two examples of that, then look at some of the future challenges uh, to humanitarianism uh, uh, in the 21st century, which is the, 
I think, the title of the, of the talk, and then finally finish up with a few pointers to the way forward uh, without suggesting I've got all the answers, which I certainly haven't. So if I start from the beginning, which is usually a good place to start, what do I and the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs actually do? I have to say that the title of Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs uh, never strikes me as being a particularly catchy or romantic title, and it reminds me um, of uh, Jim Hacker and his Ministry of Administrative Affairs. Um, I hope it's not as bad as that, but the advantage of the title is that we actually do what it says on the tin. We do... Uh, try to coordinate emergency relief efforts around the world. And that was what um, the predecessor of OCHA, the Department of Humanitarian Affairs, was invented to do uh, in 1991. It didn't exist at all before that. And the idea was very simple, to avoid uh, in emergency operations, to avoid gaps, to avoid duplications, um, to avoid slowness of response, uh, and to make response more predictable and more accountable. And those are all things which we're still trying to do today. So what we're essentially trying to do is bring all the actors together. We are not a humanitarian agency ourselves. We're not an operational agency. We don't give out food. We don't do shelter. We don't do medical supplies. We're a coordination organization. But what I say, what we try to do is to bring everybody else together, and that's on the UN side. You have the World Food Program, uh, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNICEF, the World Health Organization, and many others. You have the Red Cross and Red Crescent movements who are completely independent of us, but who we try to work with carefully. And then you have uh, the, the whole non-UN side, uh, which is uh, the, the very wide range of, of NGOs operating in the humanitarian area as well. So it's a very large and diverse and fragmented world out there. Uh, and frankly, if you were starting off with a blank sheet of paper to design a humanitarian system, you wouldn't draw it like this. But that's what we have. That's where we have to coordinate it. And that's where we have to make sure we're working together as well as we can, both on the global level uh, and actually on the ground in each particular emergency. So coordination on the ground and coordination globally is what uh, we're all about. But we also, and I also have two other basic roles which are just worth mentioning quickly. The second is advocacy, um, to use a, a sort of UN jargon term. What that means simply um, is trying to draw attention to humanitarian needs and humanita humanitarian causes, whether it be a particular geographical situation, a particular disaster, uh, or a particular aspect of a disaster which is not receiving the attention it should do and therefore not receiving the resources it should do. And one of the reasons that's important is, is that disasters suffer uh, very badly in, in many respects from what you might call the CNN effect, or perhaps I should call it the BBC effect as well, which is that some, uh, some issues, some disasters, some parts of the world receive massive amounts of media attention and others which are just as bad or possibly worse uh, receive virtually none. So we're trying to make up for that um, through our advocacy role. And then the third role is, is a sort of wider policy role, reflecting on some of these issues, reflecting on how we're responding to them, trying to be or, or represent, if you like, the intellectual leadership of the system and, and develop new ways of, of, uh, of, of approaching them and new policies for the future. Now, how do we actually go about this? We don't have any uh, way of coercing organizations to, uh, to listen to us, to cooperate with us, even the UN agencies we don't have any actual uh, legislative authority over. Um, we can only operate by persuasion and by their recognition of the fact that the system needs to be coordinated. I think they all accept that, even the NGOs who are the most independent, and some of them are pretty independent, do accept there's a need to coordinate. Uh, we also have a lot of support from the donor countries. 
um, who, who want us to succeed, who want it to be coordinated, who want to make sure that the money they're giving is being used in the most effective way. Now, the donors are uh, largely northern and western countries, uh, not exclusively, but largely, uh, and they, they raise resources either themselves from taxation or individuals and NGOs. So what is the size of the pot, the humanitarian pot, in any given year? Very hard to put a figure on it, actually, but we reckon it's something like 10 or $12 billion a year um, for all the crises around the world. Now, that's a lot of money in one sense. In another sense, it's very little money, given all the needs that there are. And I was struck by this um, recently um, when I was uh, attending the Davos meeting, um, the World Economic Forum, and we were talking about humanitarian issues. And while we were there, uh, the, the, uh, the news broke of the Societe Generale crisis when a rogue trader lost $7.5 billion um, overnight. And that seemed to me to be, well, to reflect a funny sense of priorities in a sense, but it put in, in context the amount of money we have at our disposal at any one time. And it's also clear, by the way, that we need new resources, we need new sources of money uh, for the future if we're going to tackle some of the challenges I'll be talking about. Um, I think it's also uh, worth mentioning that, uh, normally speaking, we get about two-thirds of what we appeal for, um, for either for long-running crises or for new natural disasters. That's the kind of success rate we have, um, which is actually not bad in some senses, and, and, and our donors are very generous, uh, but it means that there's a third of, of really essential, uh, urgent needs we identified which are not covered. So that's essentially what we're trying to do. Where are we trying to do it? Um, Two obvious types of disasters, first of all, the natural disasters and then the, the man-made disasters, if you like. The natural ones are obvious enough, the earthquakes, the floods, the droughts, the hurricanes, uh, etc. Uh, and there are some others you could classify in that um, category, avian flu pandemic, if it ever arrives. Uh, the Chernobyl disaster is another one. The biggest recent example was obviously the, uh, the, the Asian tsunami, the Pacific tsunami, uh, which was a massive natural disaster. Um, which everybody will recall where masses of resources were raised. I mean, an extraordinary amount of money was raised, actually, in the end, too much. But don't take that as typical. That is completely untypical because it was such a, a media disaster at the same time. And it was a massive challenge because every humanitarian organization in the world, every NGO, wanted to be there, wanted to be seen to be there, wanted to be seen to be doing something. So the coordination effort there, uh, the coordination requirement was... Uh, was absolutely gigantic, and I, th I wasn't around at the time, but I think uh, we did a reasonable job at the end of the day, but it was a, a quite a chaotic scene for quite a long time. But as I say, the tsunami is not typical in any sense because it was much bigger, uh, much better funded, uh, and much more complicated than the average natural disaster, which is a medium-sized disaster, if I can put it like that, uh, a flood or an earthquake somewhere, which affects hundreds of thousands of people, possibly millions, um, and where the absolute basics are required of food and shelter, water, medical supplies, and so on. And it's important to say that um, we sometimes talk as if the international community uh, are the saviors of the situation. But actually, in any disaster like that, governments, local authorities, local NGOs uh, of all kinds, they are the people who respond first and who will respond most. We're only a supplement um, to what they can do. How much we need to do depends on on their capacity, and one of the things we always want to do is develop their capacity to respond to disasters so that we have to do less so we can focus on the ones where we're most needed. Uh, and that's um, uh, there's a kind of attitudinal change we're trying to encourage there um, to, to make sure that uh, national governments are in the front line and we're giving them the training and help that they need. The devastation of these natural disasters can be enormous in some cases, 
I think Hurricane Mitch in Central America was one of the ones which was most devastating in, in, a, in a localized area because it can also set the development of a country back uh, literally years uh, and cost billions and billions of dollars. And even if uh, in, a, in a developing country the billions don't seem as great, that's because they're not insured and not measured in the same way. The other big category, obviously, man-made disasters, conflict situations. Um, there are sort of probably something like 20 or 25 complex emergencies, to, again, to use the jargon, we're engaged in at any one time. Now, actually, um, there are less wars in the world than there used to be. It um, doesn't always seem like that when you listen to the news, but that's the reality when the people actually measure it. But the problem is that there are more internal conflicts. I mean, when I say less wars, I mean less wars between countries, but there are more internal conflicts than there used to be. And you can measure that by the relative number of refugees, a refugee being someone who crosses a border, and uh, what we call IDPs, internally displaced people, um, who are staying in the same country. Um, refugees were the dominant category a few years ago. Now there are 10 million refugees in the world, which is bad enough after all, but there are 25 million internally displaced people, and those are only the ones we know about. So that gives you some idea of the relative impact of these internal conflicts and civil wars. The other feature of civil wars particularly is that civilians tend to be the main victims even more than of wars, of traditional wars if you like. So many of these conflicts are long running as I say and they're very difficult and dangerous to operate in because the fighting is not uh, in a particular area, it's not a particular battle, it's moving around, it's often very generalised. So this makes it very difficult and dangerous to operate in uh, but those are very often the conflict, the, 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 the context in which we are trying to operate. Two examples, um, one very well-known, one a bit less well-known perhaps. Darfur is the obvious very well-known one, um, going on since 2003 and really on the international humanitarian agenda since 2004. It's the biggest single humanitarian operation in the world. It costs about $800 million a year, something like that, uh, from the international community. Uh, there were something like 14,000 humanitarian workers on the ground trying to deal with it at any one time of whom only about 1,000 are international staff, the rest are Sudanese. And just a couple of other figures to give you some idea of the scale of it. The population of Darfur is about 6 million people. Four, million pe four out of that 6 million have been badly affected by the crisis and are in need of some international assistance. 2.5 million, that is nearly half the population, have been displaced during the conflict, and many of them are living in, uh, in actual camps. And you have to imagine what life in a camp is actually like. You see them um, on the television, um, but it's hard to imagine what life is like because it's not just the, the immediate uh, environment that you're living in, the, 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 the hut of sticks and rags or whatever it might be, uh, depending on the, uh, the, the food distributions and the water points and so on. You have to imagine it over a period of years, what life in a camp is really like, uh, the sheer boredom of it, the sheer futility of it, and the helplessness of it. And that's what you face uh, in a place like Darfur where uh, it's been going on for four years and I fear maybe going on for some more years yet. The Darfur operation actually is quite successful, I think, as a, as a humanitarian operation in the sense that the basic needs of people have been met. They're not dying of starvation, they have water, they have medical care, they have access to some education. But what it also illustrates is that humanitarian efforts or the humanitarian response is only a sticking plaster. We can keep people alive, hopefully, we can keep them in sort of minimum decent conditions, but we don't solve the problems. We can't solve the problems. Humanitarian doesn't solve the problems. Indeed, if you're uh, slightly provocative and cynical about it, you can say that by keeping all these people alive, 
and in, in reasonable health. We are helping to prolong the problems because it means the politicians and the generals can go on playing their games uh, while the people suffer. Nevertheless, it's obviously a moral imperative to help uh, people in those circumstances. And it's also hard, I say, why we're looking after their basic needs to protect, to protect them. Protection of civilians is one of the big uh, rallying cries of humanitarianism these days, but it's much easier to say than it is to do. And uh, very often, even in places like Darfur, with a large presence, we're not really protecting civilians as much as we might like to. Um, how can you solve the problems? The problem is going to be solved by political processes, uh, maybe by the presence of peacekeeping forces, but essentially there has to be some political solution. And the problem in a place like Darfur is how long can this go on? How long can we maintain that sort of aid effort? For the moment, the donors are generous, the media are interested, the workers are there, it's difficult, it's dangerous, people get killed, people get their vehicles get hijacked, they get attacked, um, but, but we're still there. But will we still be there in five years in the same way if the, if the conflict goes on? as it might uh, for that long. It's, it's, a, it's a question to which I don't have the answer, but it's a question uh, worth answering, worth asking. And the other point is, can a situation like that, uh, where you've had people in camps for four years, uh, nearly half the population in camps, can it ever go back to normal? Uh, because uh, people get used to camp life, and sometimes they have uh, facilities they didn't have when they were living in remote villages, they're not always willing to go back to their subsistence farming existence they had before. So the long-term consequences of these conflicts are also very considerable. Very briefly, a, a different sort of conflict, but also equally devastating and long-running but less well-known, is in the Congo, the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, it's one of the, it tends to be one of the neglected crises, uh, certainly in media terms, but it, there's been 10 years of war there, um, and one interesting study from, from DRC, which is worth mentioning, is that, which was done by the International Refugee Council, um, suggests that in those 10 years of war, 5.4 million people have died. That is, extra deaths of 5.4 million people. Bear in mind, this is not deaths from violence. This is not combat deaths. This is deaths from the combined effects of a conflict situation like that. So it's disease, it's malnutrition, it's stress... Uh, it's what happens to old people or disabled people in those, or children in those kind of situations. 5.4 million extra deaths over that time, which is, uh, I think it's six Rwandan genocides, uh, if you want to make that, that comparison. The problem in the, in the east of uh, Congo is very simple. You have a lot of illegal armed groups there, including refugees, uh, sorry, refugees uh, from Rwanda who were actually those responsible for the genocide, who were kind of terrorizing the local population. And that's created millions of internally displaced people. And in a country with little or no infrastructure in the East, little or no effective government, uh, inevitably the international community is called on to try to fill the gap to some extent. So it's the second largest humanitarian operation in the world, uh, something like $450 million a year. Um, but it's really only scratching the surface uh, in a place like that. And there are some very special challenges uh, in the East of DRC. I mean, one is that you may have heard of, some of you at least, is the challenge of sexual violence um, in Eastern DRC, which is truly horrifying and, and truly uh, brutal in a way which uh, I don't wish particularly to go into, but having visited a hospital, the Pansy Hospital near Bukavu, where the victims um, are treated, um, it was a very uh, difficult experience from an emotional point of view to see and talk to some of these women who had been brutalized in that kind of way. Again, I would say the humanitarian operation is reasonably successful in, in keeping people alive in a minimal way, 
but it's really only a drop in the ocean, as I say, against the development needs there are in a country like that. Um, just a final point on the background. Um, why do we do it? I mean, that may seem obvious, but, but just, just look at it for a second. Obviously, there's a simple humanitarian moral imperative to help people uh, who are in desperate need and suffering. Uh, and a feeling that we simply cannot let such things happen uh, in the world around us, and that's absolutely right. That's not a new feeling, but um, it's, it's a much more systematic response uh, than it ever used to be. And I think that's driven, obviously, by instant information, but also uh, by the global reach that we can now have. In other words, now we can do something, so we must do something. So the demands on us and the expectations on us, rightly, uh, are both rising, which is one of the challenges we face. The basic principles um, that we're trying to uh, operate by uh, in all these situations are very, uh, very, very obvious in a sense, but very important. They're neutrality, impartiality, and independence. So what does that mean? It means that we are driven by what people need, not by any kind of political or religious or tribal or ethnic or any other agenda. Um, so we don't have any hidden agenda, any hidden politics to, to help this group as against that group. We are trying, we don't always succeed, but we are trying to, to, to respond purely to needs wherever we are in the world, whatever the media are saying about them, um, and uh, respond in a way which is not dependent on any political agendas. And I'll come back in a minute to some of the problems that actually poses. So um, what are the future challenges? Um, they're current challenges, actually, but they're... Uh, some of the biggest challenges you face uh, in the future in all this uh, humanitarian effort. I'll, I'll talk about three in particular, but there are others, of course. The first is um, protecting, um, and again, I, there's a bit of UN jargon, or rather humanitarian jargon here, is protecting humanitarian space. The second is the, the uh, problems raised by climate change, and the third uh, is the, um, the latest, in some ways, the most immediately worrying, which is the rise in food prices, um, which has already been mentioned in the introduction. So first of all, humanitarian space, what do we mean by that? Um, it's very closely related to the principles I just talked about. It's the freedom to act purely on need and the freedom to work closely with those in need and indeed those in control of a particular area, even if um, they are regarded by the world in some cases as terrorists uh, or, or beyond the pale. We may need to work with them, deal with them in order to reach the people we actually need, and that's part of uh, having the uh, humanitarian space. It means keeping our distance from the political and security objectives of others, even when they're, for example, United Nations peacekeeping forces in some cases. And we need to keep our distance from them so we, we are separate from them, so the humanitarian operations are separate from those political uh, and security operations, because we absolutely need to maintain that perception of neutrality and independence if we're going to operate successfully. This is much more difficult. I mean, all humanitarians have that um, aim. It's rather more difficult for the UN agencies to do uh, than it is for NGOs or the Red Cross movement because we are, we are associated with member states' agendas. We are associated with the Security Council, whether we like it or not. Uh, we are associated with peacekeeping forces. Uh, we get involved with, with military operations of one sort or another uh, in, in ways which others can keep uh, clear of. But even though it's more difficult for the UN agencies to maintain that space, it's just as vital for us if we possibly can. Why do I say it's a future challenge? The point is it's under threat from, from all sorts of different directions. Uh, it's, it's under threat from those who want to enlist humanitarian aid in their own uh, political agendas. For example, in the so-called war on terror, um, there's, there's always pressure to help this group and not that group uh, and try to uh, um, 
erode our, our, our independence in that way. Um, there is a, the erosion of the distinction, which is very important for us, between civilian and military actors on the ground. Uh, there is a concept which we reject absolutely, but which still exists, called military humanitarian assistance. Now, this is a very understandable thing. If you're, if you're the military forces operating in Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever it might be, um, you don't want to be seen as simply kicking doors down and killing people. You actually want to try and win some hearts and minds as well. People, you know, you can understand that concept. But that leads sometimes the military forces to go into humanitarian operations themselves, start handing out food or, or handing out uh, goods of various kinds. And that's not a bad thing in itself, you may say. The problem for the humanitarian community is it, 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 can, it introduces a confusion of roles um, which is dangerous, uh, which is difficult for humanitarians to accept, but also dangerous for them. Very often the humanitarian community will be there after the military have left. They were there before the military arrived. If they're simply perceived as operating, uh, as, I, as I say, again, to someone's uh, political agenda, it's going to put them in actual danger. So that's why we try and insist uh, so much on keeping separate uh, with not always great success, as you can see in places like uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Two other side parts of this humanitarian space agenda. One is access. Access to people in need is fundamental. If you don't have access to them, you can't actually help them. Um, to have that access, we need governments, and in some cases non-state actors, again, to use the jargon. In other words, the resistance movement, rebels, the terrorists, whatever you want to call them. We need their cooperation as well. And that means they need to accept that sometimes we're going to be there uh, when they're doing things they wish we weren't seeing. Um, so it's very important that we have that access, but sometimes they don't want us to have that access because by simply being there, we are acting as a deterrent to some of the things they might want to do. But preserving that access is fundamental because, I say, without it, we can't actually help anybody. That's, uh, I hope, reasonably obvious. And the, the last point is uh, acceptance of our... Uh, humanitarian space in the sense of accepting us as neutral actors and therefore not actually attacking us as such. Again, you might think it's obvious you don't attack humanitarian workers, but actually people do uh, very frequently uh, because you become identified with one side or the other, even if you don't want to be, uh, because you're in the way at the wrong time, uh, for criminal banditry reasons. For all of those reasons, humanitarians are more under attack uh, in many places around the world than I think they've ever been, and too many die. Um, uh, doing their jobs already. So all this is a big challenge. Uh, it's very political. It's, it's very um, polarized to some extent between the north and south in political terms, um, with some of the developing countries tending to see humanitarians as intervening in their affairs unnecessarily, <coughs> creating tensions they don't want. Um, but we need to protect that space, that ability to operate uh, against this deteriorating environment. Second big challenge is climate change. Um, why is that a big challenge for us? Simply because um, it's probably the single biggest driver of extra demands in humanitarian terms which we face. And that is because it is producing more and more intense natural disasters. Um, this is not something, this is not a future phenomenon, this is something which is happening right now. Um, and we, we can see the evidence of that in the trends. Even if you can't link any particular disaster, any flood or hurricane or whatever it might be, to climate change, the trends are clear. And that those trends are what the scientists have predicted. So, for example, in 2006, there were 254 floods, serious floods, uh, according to sort of accepted definitions. That was actually 43% more than the average annual figure between 2000 and 2004. Uh, and this kind of year is becoming the rule rather than the exception. 
uh, it's what we sometimes call the new normal. In other words, this, this degree, uh, this scale of, of natural disasters. Nine out of ten disasters are now climate-related, extreme weather event-related in one way or another. And to give you another example, last year we launched 15 flash appeals, that is, appeals for um, major disasters. They're medium-sized compared to tsunamis maybe, but they are still major disasters. And that 15 flash appeals, that was 50% more than we've ever launched in any one year before. And 14 of those were for weather-related disasters. Um, so I think that gives us some idea of the, the scale of the challenge we might start to face um, as, uh, as climate change uh, becomes a more serious problem. That means we're going to need more, ex more capacity and more resources to deal with those disasters. It also means we need to think about it in different ways. We need to, to, to work harder to mitigate the impact of those disasters when they happen. You can't prevent the disaster. You can reduce the vulnerability of populations and countries to disasters I mean, the most obvious example is earthquake-proofing buildings. Um, but if you, don't, if, you, if you try and avoid building on floodplains where you know there's going to be a flood, uh, that can make an enormous difference. And there's a whole range of actions like that. So you need to reduce the risk of disasters. You need to increase your preparedness for disasters, um, which means having the right sort of stockpiles of equipment, but also the right kind of committees or whatever it might be to respond to it, uh, management structures for, to respond. And then you need to strengthen your actual response to the disasters uh, when they happen. But this, the, the things which might arise, the challenges which might arise from climate change are not just about uh, more floods and droughts, although that's serious enough. Um, if the sea level rise, which is what everybody expects, um, if there's water scarcity, uh, in, in some areas at least, which everybody expects, this is going to, to, to lead to other kinds of challenges for us. The most obvious is extra migration pressures. Um, some researchers have suggested, perfectly plausibly I think, that there could be an extra 50 million people um, on the move because of climate change in the next 20 years. Again, a huge challenge there. And it could lead to more conflict because there will be battles over resources, battles over energy, battles over arable land, battles over fresh water, um, all of which could create, as I say, more conflict and therefore more, uh, more new demands for humanitarian help. Because in some senses, climate change is a natural phenomenon. Well, it's not a natural phenomenon, it's a man-made phenomenon. But it's also a security issue and probably the security issue uh, which faces the world today. So, again, I think you can see the potential extent of the challenge for us in, in uh, trying to meet the challenges of climate change quite apart from the challenges of, of actually trying to reduce emissions. And the third big future challenge is indeed food prices. Um, the prices of essential staple goods um, have risen by more than 50% over the last six months and probably by about 80% over the last year or so. So what's happening here? I mean, we, people are still analyzing it. Um, our assumption is that this is uh, a demand-led crisis. In other words, global demand for food has now exceeded global supply of food. Just, just leave aside the waste issues for a moment, but um, simply demand has, has outstripped supply, and that's led in a rather narrow international market to prices rising very uh, fast. The drivers of that demand are, are relatively obvious, I think. Population growth itself, uh, new consumption patterns um, for some populations who are getting more prosperous, which is a good thing in itself, but it leads people to drink more milk, to eat more meat, and that puts more strain on land and a particular grain consumption. Then you have the effect of biofuels. Um, it's controversial in itself. The effects of climate change on agriculture, drought in, in Australia over many years, for example, 
And then you have other issues which are going along with that. There are no grain reserves or very few grain reserves in the world at the moment, so there's no buffer stocks because people decided they didn't need them a few years ago. Uh, the effect of energy prices on food production and food transport. And finally, probably speculation in the markets as well by commodity traders and hedge funders and, and such people. Um, I think the, the wider reason, perhaps, if you like, is, is a long-term period of, of plentiful cheap food, which had led to a kind of complacency where people thought that agriculture would look after itself, there'd always be enough food to buy around the world, uh, the markets would work, so you could effectively sort of neglect it. I think we're seeing that that was a mistake, um, that food, of course, is fundamental, producing food is fundamental, we need to tackle that. Um, some of the obvious um, effects are being felt already in terms of unrest um, at rising food prices. Haiti has been the, the biggest example where the, the government were actually overthrown because of prote protests about food prices, but it's been happening elsewhere too. And all this threatens to create, is there's lots of other issues go with it, but it threatens to create a huge new humanitarian crisis as well, with millions more people around the world actually suffering from food insecurity. It's not likely to be the, the kind of classic famine situation you've seen in the past. This is not probably the Ethiopian famine of a few years ago with starving children on your television screens. It's rather more insidious than that. People have compared it to a silent rolling tsunami, and I think in a sense that's, that's quite a good um, analogy. In other words, you've got millions, hundreds of millions of people who are eating less because they, their income simply no longer cover the food needs they have, and eating less well as well, eating different food. Um, so the effect is of uh, extra nutritional stress around for millions of people. They may not starve to death, but their nutrition is going to be much worse. And this will have dramatic effects, particularly for, for the youngest children, on the mental and physical development, because if you're malnourished as a young child, uh, you never recover from it, either mentally or physically. Of course, it will have effects on health more generally, um, it will have effects on people's willingness to spend money on health because they don't have any money left after buying their food. And it will have effects on education, for example, because if you spend all your money on food, yeah, you can't afford to send your children to school if you have to pay even a very small amount. So the knock-on effects uh, are, are uh, enormous and are probably accumulating as we speak. In other words, we have not really seen the effects of this crisis yet. Um, they're building up, um, and they're building up probably uh, steadily in many places. How long and how big will this crisis be? The truth is we don't know. Um, the assumption is that the, the, the factors driving up food prices are structural factors. They're not just a blip in prices because of speculation. Um, so they will take some time to uh, unwind for production to catch up. Production will catch up. Agricultural production can catch up. The world can feed itself um, for some time to come. Uh, price signals will work in places like Europe and the US. Um, so I think it will be fixed in the short term, in maybe three to five years before it's fixed. But there's a, a wider long-term question as well. The World Bank estimate that the world needs to grow 50% more food by the year 2030 than it does now. Is that possible um, on not that much more land uh, with scarcity of water? I mean, there's an interesting question there, interesting question perhaps about how to, to develop a more sustainable kind of agriculture, which is, doesn't put so much pressure um, on the uh, environment as well because if you intensify agriculture with more fertilizer using more water uh, you're storing up problems at the same time there are probably technological solutions to this but people have not been investing in the research necessary uh, to produce those technological solutions um, what are the solutions to the food price crisis well there's a humanitarian uh, need there which we're going to have to work on um, 
We will probably have to need to be very selective in who we help. We will not be able to help all the hungry people in the world. We don't help all the hungry people in the world now, very far from it. So we'll probably have to focus on the most vulnerable, that is perhaps the children, uh, the pregnant or lactating mothers, and those suffering from HIV AIDS. There are different categories you can choose, but we'll have to make some very difficult choices between countries and between population groups because resources will inevitably be limited. And we may have to help some groups that we've not helped traditionally in the past or not been involved with traditionally in the past. Most of the humanitarian effort tends to be in rural areas, helping the rural poor, the subsistence poor. Um, the, the biggest problems here may be for the urban poor in the biggest cities, uh, and that poses a whole lot of new challenges which we, we're, we're not familiar with um, so well. Obviously, there's a lot of other things beyond the purely humanitarian response. There's a short-term need to help farmers, particularly in the developing world, because the immediate effect of what's going on at the moment is that fertilizers and seeds are more expensive, and they don't see the benefit in extra prices. So there's a need for, for help there, and particularly uh, in developing countries. It's also a fantastic opportunity, maybe, for agriculture in developing countries, if we can get the responses right, if we can get the incentives right, uh, and if we can reverse the neglect of so many years. Because if you can get farmers in developing countries um, to uh, be able to operate more, uh, more profitably, more effectively, then a lot of the problems of, of the world's poor, who are mostly living in rural areas, 70% of them by most estimates, uh, that could help to fix poverty. But the short-term effect is, of course, making poverty worse. There are lots of other issues there, trade issues. Um, uh, at the moment, countries are responding in ways which may make sense for them nationally, by expanding the export of, of wheat or rice or putting export, extra tariffs on the export of, of wheat or rice, but which are disastrous internationally because they're making the problem worse. Um, those kind of internal measures they may be taking in terms of food subsidies or reducing prices may make sense as a short-term response to avoid unrest, but are they sustainable? Are they the right uh, responses in an economic sense more generally? Um, should, is this an opportunity to fix some of the dreadful problems of agricultural subsidies that the Americans and the Europeans have caused over time? Is it an opportunity to get the Doha round agreed? It probably is, but uh, will we actually do that? Um, it's not clear. Um, for example, the American Congress, I think, is, is currently debating the Farm Bill, which offers huge um, uh, subsidies to American farmers. The only question is how much they increase it by, not whether they should reduce it. And I see that the French government is arguing this morning that what's happening is an extra argument for, for uh, European food subsidies rather than the opposite. So there's lots of arguments to go on there. There's the issue about biofuels I've already uh, mentioned. Again, I think we should avoid a, um, a knee-jerk reaction to this, saying that bi all biofuels are bad. I mean, why do we invent biofuels? Because we have a massive uh, environmental problem, climate change problem. We don't want to throw out the baby with the bathwater uh, and simply say all biofuels are bad. We need to have a, uh, a differentiated response. It may be that uh, using agricultural products for fuel in some places and using some crops is not a good idea, but maybe in others uh, and vice versa. There are some products which are not food products um, which can be very effectively used. Again, we need to look at that carefully. As I say, I think we may require a lot more resources to deal with this issue, uh, certainly in the short term. Where is that going to come from? Uh, is it going to be the traditional donors are going to have to reach much further into their pockets or should we be looking to the oil producers, for example, who've got a massive bonanza from extra energy prices? Um, should we be looking at the private sector to help much more? I think probably we should. But how do we do that? Um, how do we tap money from some of the big foundations like the Gates Foundation to help the humanitarian response, um, which is not normally what they focus on? 
So again, I mean, the, the point is this is a, a massive challenge. It's a massive challenge which is just, just beginning, uh, and we certainly need a comprehensive integrated approach if we're going to solve that problem um, in the, the short and medium term. Um, just finally looking forward uh, to some ways we might try and tackle some of these problems and some of the ways we are trying to tackle them in general. First of all, um, there is simply the, what is the role of the UN uh, in all this? The UN is far from the only actor and is not the one with the best reputation uh, always uh, in, in these areas as in others. But it does have a position at the centre of the international system in many ways and it has a legitimacy which comes from having a universal membership. So I think the United Nations can and should give a lead in some of these areas and can and should give a lead, for example, um, as it has been doing in responding to climate change and in responding to the challenge of food prices and I think we'll, we'll see uh, more of that uh, in the weeks to come. But there's also, uh, leaving aside that central role of the UN, which, which it can play, I think, there are reform measures, reform ideas already around in the system which are trying to make sure that humanitarian response is uh, quicker, uh, more predictable, more accountable, more coordination. Um, first of all, of course, there is, uh, we, we try to learn the lessons from the tsunami, we try to learn the lessons from the Pakistan earthquake, uh, which is another huge uh, recent crisis. We're trying to learn the lessons from the initial response in Darfur, which was too slow and inadequate. So we are trying to make sure there is better coordination, uh, better coordination globally, better coordination on the ground, uh, more stockpiles of the things that are needed so we can respond faster. We've set up a new fund, the Central Emergency Response Fund, which is a pooled fund. Com countries put funds into this uh, Central Emergency Response Fund, which we, which we administer uh, from New York, um, and where we can direct funds very, very quickly to any new crisis that arises or any new twist of an old crisis um, and get some money in there fast for the most life-saving needs. Um, so speed but, and predictability, but also fairness, because we also use that fund to equalize the resources which are going to different crises to try and counter the CNN effect I mentioned earlier. We're trying to make sure that the sectoral response, that is the response in food or water or medical help or shelter or protection of civilians or whatever it might be, is as well coordinated in that particular sector as possible. That means ensuring that all the agencies and the NGOs which are working in that sector actually get together and decide how they're going to help, where they're going to help and what, what means they're going to use. And it also means that you... Um, one of them is chosen to be the leader of that sector so they, are, they have a responsibility to make sure that the response is as good as it can be um, it's not a perfect system but we think it's better than what was there before we're also trying to make sure that the partnerships between the UN side and the non-UN side that is essentially between the UN and the NGOs is much better in the past to, to simplify a bit the UN agencies regarded themselves as the big boys in the game and the NGOs were the sort of what they used to call, or still call actually, implementing partners. In other words, the people who actually take the money and do the work on the ground. Um, but that was kind of seen as a second-class citizen. Uh, I think we recognize this is completely uh, wrong, uh, that actually NGOs do 70% of the real work on the ground um, in all these crisis situations. They should be treated at least as equal partners in planning how the response should be made. So we're making a huge effort um, to try and equalize up that relationship. Another crucial element is leadership, and particularly leadership, leadership globally, but that's my problem, but also leadership on the ground. So you, you appoint humanitarian coordinators on the ground, from the, usually from the UN system, but they don't have to be, who have that responsibility to, to, to decide 
where the response should be, how it should be organized, where the money should go, where the biggest needs are. Uh, but that means you've got to have good, qualified, well-trained people, and that's something we're still working on. To a few other very quick points, resources, as I've already said, we need to look beyond the resources we have at the moment. They're not adequate for what we have now. They will certainly not be adequate for what we face in the future. So where are we going to find that extra money from? How do we persuade um, most countries in the world to think this is, this is their effort and not just the, um, the responsibility of a few donors? Uh, 10 or 12 uh, big Western donors give 90% of the money at the moment. And there are plenty of countries which have plenty of money which are not really involved. We need to find a way of involving them, as well, as I say, um, of uh, drawing on the resources of the private sector. But that's related to one of the perception issues I mentioned earlier, that some, in some places, in some countries, humanitarian response, uh, emergency relief, is regarded as a Western, it's a Western thing. And it has a Western hidden political agenda. Therefore, it's not really something they want to be involved in. We've got to really get over that. We need to bring in, for example, uh, the Islamic world into this process much more than they are at the moment. Islamic NGOs, of which there are very many. Uh, we need to involve governments in developing countries more in what we do to get over some of these perception problems. Uh, we need innovation. Innovation in the way you respond. I mean, the classic response is well known. You collect money and you spend it in, in the different areas. Um, there, are, there are some interesting market-driven ideas um, out there, like insurance. Um, can you insure against a drought or a flood uh, or even an earthquake? I mean, the answer is you can. You can insure anything if you pay the, the premium. But how big is the premium? How is it going to be organized? Who decides when those criteria can be met? There are people interested in doing this. There are experiments going on. Uh, it's worth looking at those um, for the time being. Um, so those are some of the ways forward we're looking, uh, pointers forward, to the, to the way we can tackle some of these huge challenges. Um, and I think you know, this is, these, these are huge challenges, and the international community needs to be well-organized, needs to be uh, really coordinated around some strategies, and that's where the UN, I think, can take a lead uh, with all the problems that uh, poses and all the need to work with other major actors like the World Bank uh, and the IMF, for example, but also many others. Um, just a final reminder, again, uh, we are trying to deal with these disaster situations, but we recognize that we can only do so much. The humanitarians are providing sticking plasters. They're not providing solutions. So the politicians essentially have to provide the solutions. They have to provide the solutions for climate change. They have to provide the solutions for all the conflicts I've talked about. They have to provide the solutions for uh, food prices and agricultural production I've talked about. All of that can be done. We know very often what the answers are. Will it be done? Um, that's a question of political will um, and maybe for a young generation like you to take forward. We'll, we'll do our best to keep the victims alive while that's happening, but again, um, the politicians need to fix it. So uh, that's my final message to you. So thank you very much for listening. have the opportunity to hear from uh, Professor Patsal as a respondent, and uh, this lecture has given rise to a number of issues. We'll also have time to hear from the floor uh, comments and uh, any questions you might have. So he'll speak for about 10, 15 minutes. I'd just like to introduce him very briefly. He's a professor of development studies here at the LSE. As I mentioned, he's also the director of the Crisis States uh, program here. He works on politics and development with a focus on a number of 
issues, uh, states under stress, post-war state reconstruction, and the politics of HIV and the AIDS crisis. And he has considerable research experience both in sub-Saharan Africa and Southeast Asia. Thank you, James. Hi, thanks very much for inviting me. And um, thank you, John Holmes, for what I think was a, an extremely comprehensive uh, exposition of, of, uh, of the work of OCHA. And I'd like to say right off the top that um, in our own research on the ground, we find that the, the analytical work that OCHA does that underpins its coordination is, is very strong indeed, and we've seen this in Afghanistan and DRC. Also, I offer my comments on, on, on your, your talk with a great deal of humility because I know the UN is a very unwieldy system, a very difficult one, and only as good as its member states make it or allow it to be. Um, I really would like to hear from the floor, so I want to make four comments rather quickly, briefly, around these important issues. The first one has to do with humanitarian space, um, the principles of neutrality. These are certainly key um, in order to pursue a peaceful world and a world where, where development may be possible and the places you talk about are among the most underprivileged, backward and underdeveloped in the world. But I'd like to suggest that the space for humanitarian intervention has been shrunken um, by the doctrine of liberal interventionism. You, you referred to this. I, I think this has done more damage than anything like the CNN or media effect in relationship to raising resources for humanitarian assistance. The invasion of, of Iraq was particularly problematic to the, to, to the reputation of the international community led by the most developed countries through the UN. Um, doctrines like those endorsed by Michael Ignatiev, um, Empire Light and, and uh, liberal humanitarianism under the, the umbrella of, of US security have, ha, have really done a lot to cause the problems of perception that you talked about. Um, so I, I wonder whether or not this, this attack on humanitarian space, which has come from, from the war on terror, uh, hurts the efforts of, uh, uh, of the United Nations system to raise funds uh, for humanitarian um, relief. And I wonder as well if you're not somehow more influenced by those political powers that be because of the structure in which funds need to be raised on an annual basis. And would that not be a subject for important reforms in the future? The new fund that you talk about seems extremely important, but probably not at all enough. Um, secondly, the question of climate change. Recently, there has been a wave of statements by the World Food Program, by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, by the NATO Secretary General, uh, about the extent to which climate change is causing conflict. And I think this is something that you alluded to as well. Um, in the academic world, we come across the work of Homer Dixon, um, who, who talks about climate refugees. And I wonder if this is not really the wrong way to put it. Uh, the political economy of a place still seems to be the determining factor as to how a community um, in any place can respond to the challenges of climate, uh, climate change and other types of, 
of natural and man-made environmental disasters. The profound inequality that's there on the ground is clearly a determining factor in terms of who suffers and how suffering is distributed and how possible it may be to to relieve and prevent uh, the effects uh, of climate change. So I would like to know a little bit more how you might be thinking about the interconnections between climate change and and, and population displacement and livelihoods and, and, and conflict. Um, I think you're quite right to be talking about different methods to, to mitigate risk um, uh, that, that, that are possible to promote from, from the position of the international community, but um, does the UN have the space to give the lead uh, uh, on, on, on these issues? Perhaps it would be good if we could hear a bit more uh, um, what's being talked about across the UN system in that regard, the interconnections between these, the, these problems um, are crucial to solving them. Specifically on that question, that's my third point, is the link between humanitarian um, intervention and assistance and developmental intervention. This is a long, long debate. It's gone on for a long time. And inside the UN system itself, there's been a lot of recognition that one cannot draw barriers between, between what's done in response to a humanitarian emergency and what's done in relationship to, to, to longer-term development. Um, in a sense, there was a big step backwards, I think, when the Peacebuilding Commission was recently established at the UN, because in a way, that was, it was hoped that that, that that new body would help to bridge the divides that separate UN agencies, uh, UN Development Program, for instance, from the UN... Uh, uh, UN agencies providing relief. Um, So I'd like to know uh, to what extent the humanitarian world would benefit from much more development uh, education and orientation. Uh, And should humanitarians generally be much more developmentally informed and oriented? Finally, I'd like to come on to this question of the food crises that you talked about Um, there have been horrendous riots in Haiti, as you mentioned, riots right across Africa. This is a very serious crisis, but it's not a crisis that resulted from the fact that people uh, decided they didn't want food stocks anymore. That decision was very much produced by the, the neoliberal revolution over the last 20 years. There was a direct attack on concepts of food security um, and in the promotion of structural adjustment programs across Africa and in the liberalization programs that were advanced in East Asia and Southeast Asia, there was an explicit proposition that is no longer necessary to talk about building up local food stocks or local food security. What was important was a combination of free markets and democracy which would allow everyone to earn enough to be able to buy their food security. Now, this involved the dismantling of uh, of local food stocks, the dismantling of subsidies to agriculture throughout the developing world, the dismantling of marketing boards. Of course, many of these instruments had problems related to them. There are problems of corruption, problems of inefficiency, but nevertheless, this uh, infrastructure was broken apart. And I'd suggest that that was done in a very ahistorical way. The United States, more than any other country in the world, 
developed the notion of food security. In fact, the entire, the entire history of the United States in terms of agriculture was about um, developing and ensuring food security at home, and that was talked about quite explicitly until at least 20 years ago. Now it's talked about in Europe and the United States in an indirect way through the continued maintenance of subsidies to, to, to own farmers. Um, the point is that we do understand quite a bit about food security, but it would require a reversal of this historic position. Um, and I think uh, perhaps that has not been recognized fully. You know, always, it's always been the case that only a very tiny percentage of the world's rice production has been traded. So just a tiny increase in demand from a growing economy like China completely wipes out any rice surpluses that are around. Um, in Indonesia, which once had um, a, quite a, a vibrant ne network of, of local food stocks, after going through the liberalization process, they, they faced the 1997 financial crisis. In Indonesia, there was hunger um, for the first time um, in 30 years as a result of local communities not having the wherewithal to act in markets to buy to buy in food. Um, so uh, I wonder if, from your perspective in OCHA, you might be able to stimulate and spark debates right across the UN system because, for example, the UNFAO bought into this, to this orientation and helped to promote it through its own programs. Uh, I think you're right to put a great deal of accent on this problem. Um, sustainable agriculture is important, as you say. Uh, but perhaps also one has to reconsider, give new place to redistributive agrarian reforms that would put land back into the hands of people who actually will use it productively for agriculture. And more controversial issues uh, like GM crops need to come back on the agenda. Uh, a great deal of research has shown that there's been um, a lot of uh, um, um, pseudoscientific um, uh, opposition to this. Um, but perhaps it offers, the new technologies offer new, new prospects. Um, generally speaking, though, the development agencies, the international development agencies, have not been talking about agriculture. The international community itself now gives something like 2% of all foreign aid to agriculture. This was something like 15% 20 years ago. Instead, uh, money is going to good governance programs and increasingly to programs that are somehow related to priorities determined by the war on terror. So these are highly political questions. I realize uh, from your position in Oche, um, you perhaps can't address all of them. But these are some questions that are really at the heart of the agenda, and I hope to see um, these basic questions being raised inside the UN system as you grapple with these problems. Thank you very much. I'm uh, going to give the floor to Sir Holmes for a few moments to respond to a couple points that were just raised before we open up the floor. So over to you. Thank you very much. And I'll try not to put the microphone on. Um, monopolize the, the floor too much. Um, just to respond very briefly, on the, the first question of how much humanitarian space was damaged by so-called humanitarian interventions, and I, I agree with you. Um, I don't think you heard me defending the invasion of Iraq, whatever I may have done when I was British ambassador in Iraq. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
And certainly that has helped to cause some of those perception problems. Um, but that, the only question I would pose is, does what happened there uh, remove the need to think about the, the problem of humanitarian interventions? Because the reverse question to yours is, if there was a Rwandan genocide today, would we do better than we did last time, when we did nothing, essentially, uh, for all sorts of reasons? Um, and to do something would have required intervention. Uh, so, you know, are we going to let what happened in Iraq um, remove all possibility of genuine humanitarian intervention for the future? That's, that's you know, where we need to strike a balance, um, which is going to be very difficult to strike. And there's a whole new argument about what the responsibility to protect means. The responsibility to protect civilians is essentially the primary responsibility of the government concerned of what happens when they fail to do it. Um, what is the responsibility of the international community at that particular point? Of course, the answer is not always military invasion. The answer is almost never military invasion, but it may needs to be there maybe uh, as a last resort in some very extreme cases like that in Rwanda. Um, how much is climate change causing conflict uh, and so on? I mean, I, I agree with you, it's not the, the primary driver of conflict, that's all sorts of other things, but it can exacerbate it. I mean, Darfur uh, is a result of all sorts of other factors as well, but one factor in there somewhere um, is the effect of desertification in Darfur and the resulting struggle between um, nomads, pastoralists, and farmers who happen to be um, sometimes Arabs and Africans. It's not as simple as that and much more complicated than that. Nevertheless, it's a factor in there somewhere, and maybe a factor in another conflict too, and even more so in the future. So I, I just think you need to keep in mind that it is, it is that kind of um, uh, issue, even if it's not the main driver of conflict, and, and most conflicts will arise from other, um, other areas. Um, the link between humanitarian intervention or humanitarian response and development responses is, as you say, a very old argument, which I don't want to give too much detail about. What tends to happen, uh, as you will know, is that when the humanitarian emergency relief effort ends and, and we leave, there is then a gap before the development effort picks up the reconstruction effort. So um, there's a gap when there's no peace dividend, which is what's likely needed to stop the conflict, if it was a conflict in the first place, recurring. Um, now, you could argue that maybe one way of attacking that is that the humanitarians become more development-minded, but the problem is really that the humanitarian response is very different from the development. Timescales are different. Uh, you know, you need something, and you need it now, and you need it. You know, it needs to be a quick fix, and you haven't got time to think too hard uh, about you know, the longer term. You need to have a longer term in your head somewhere, obviously. But uh, you know, you've got to be, you're saving lives right now. Development uh, actors are thinking in terms of 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, working very closely with governments. You know, getting the basics right takes a lot of analysis and study. So the two sides tend to be. Have difficulty working together, and different kinds of people tend to do the two. What we need to find is a way of, of linking the two so that the, the transition is seamless rather than this being this gap which happens, this reconstruction gap. But we haven't fixed that problem, and I just recognize it's a very serious problem. And on the food prices uh, issue, um, when I, again, I agree with, with most of what you say about um, how this came about, and it is a market failure. I mean, that's essentially what it is, and uh, as I said, it does re result from. 30 years of complacency and neglect uh, about agriculture, uh, particularly about agriculture in, in the developing world, and all sorts of other distortions which are going into the system. Now, I, I'm not sure that you know, all the panoply of, of, of things we've been talking about needs to be reintroduced, uh, but I certainly think we need to look at them again. The only thing I just 
warn against is um, going back into a system where countries think they need to be self-sufficient themselves in food. Um, because if we have um, a reasonably liberal um, trading market in food, uh, which means, incidentally, that developing countries should have access to developed country markets in the way that they don't now, one of the fundamental problems. But if you have that, that's likely to result in a more logical and rational and economically um, efficient division of labor in terms of what crops are grown where than if you simply have uh, a world which closes up on itself. And that's the, that's the danger of, of um, saying there's a market failure, so let's go back to, to you know, all growing our own food. So food security doesn't necessarily need to need to lead you to a sort of protectionist response, which I think will be, be bad for the world and bad for food production in the world. I'll stop there. Okay, as usual, we uh, have the opportunity to hear from you. I request that you keep your intervention reasonably short because we have till exactly 8 o'clock. And um, kindly let us know what your name and affiliation is. I'll take three questions at a time, and then we'll give the panelists a moment to respond. Let's see a show of hands. We'll have this gentleman here. Let me just pick the three. Hands. The gentleman in the back. Nobody quite brave enough yet? Let's hear from those two to start. Can I just ease it into the question with a very simple one? My name is Christopher Lutz. Take the microphone, please. My name is Christopher Lutz. I'm a trustee of London Citizens and Other Charities. My question is very simple. There's this wonderful website called freerice.com, which could spread the word much, much better if it was promoted better in itself. And as you probably know, I don't know how many of you have seen it, it um, collects free rice for starving people to the tune of now, I think, 300 million grains a day, and it could do 10 times as much if it was better promoted. I think it should be linked to the website of LSE and other universities so more people use it and more and less people will starve. It's a very simple um, website called freerice.com and it also is fun and educational and so forth. A very small question. Thank you. Yep, hello, and thank you for giving me the floor. Okay, my name is Nigel Nichols. I'm speaking from, I'm an undergraduate um, student at London Metropolitan University. Okay, so I was wondering um, what do the panel believe um, would be the gains or the importance of um, in humanitarian intervention, in informal information gathering networks, and um, you know the monitoring of the political, you know, circumstances before it, you know, it's likely to develop into a massive, massive disaster, basically. Because oh, hey, just one last thing, because the formal networks aren't always reliable, as we know. So, um, what do you think is the possibility of developing in, informal information gathering networks? Thank you. We'll take two more hands, and I'd like a, to see a woman. <laughs> Wait for the mic, please. It's on its way. My name is Catherine Pitt. I'm an MSc student at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. I've worked in a couple of countries where the cluster system, which you mentioned, had been introduced. Um, and uh, there were certainly many very positive aspects of it, but I think it also highlighted some severe shortcomings of some of the UN agencies identified 
as cluster leads, notably my interest in health. WHO um, showed some severe weaknesses of leadership. I'm wondering what you see as OCHA's role in, in advocating in this area, um, since, as you point out, um, you don't actually have any direct authority over WHO or the other UN agencies. Okay, I'd like to take one more since the first was a comment rather than a question, if that's okay with the panelists. Uh, and keep it short because I, I, we have to be kind. Um, show of hands. Somebody, okay, this gentleman here. Uh, I'm Farid from uh, London School of Tropical Medicine. My first question is uh, uh, how you are evaluating the UN efforts in Afghanistan in terms of coordination uh, and what is your uh, possible or recommended solutions for uh, this uh, Afghan conflict or humanitarian crisis in that country? working with 
try and sort out the way they should respond to health problems rather than being an emergency organization. And that's led them to have um, people on the ground who are not naturally attuned to, to emergency disaster response. And I think that's something we, um, we need to be conscious of. Ocho's role in, the, in this can be and should be actually saying when this happens, and I, I don't know whether you're in DRC, but that's exactly where it happens. Um, <laughs> say to WHO, you aren't doing a good enough job, you must give up your task to somebody else. And we have to have the honesty to say that, and they have the honesty to accept it and find another, another substitute, if there is one, which there isn't always. And Cluster Lead can be an NGO as well as a UN agency, although it doesn't always happen. Um, how do I evaluate UN efforts in Afghanistan? I mean, it's a very complicated question. Um, on the humanitarian side, we are struggling, I think, um, because we didn't, it wasn't after the intervention of 2001, it wasn't regarded as a humanitarian crisis. It gradually developed into one over time because of what's happened there. So our coordination mechanisms are not as strong as they should be. And they're also, in the particular context of Afghanistan, part of the UN mission, which is a difficulty because it compromises this humanitarian space concept and distance that I was talking about. And that's an issue we're looking at at the moment. Um, but essentially, we need to do much better in liaising and coordinating between the civilian and military actors. I mean, it's the classic example of where the military are trying to do humanitarian assistance to win hearts and minds, and it doesn't work. It just it complicates our life enormously uh, and isn't actually producing the results desired either because it's not what they're good at, and it's not systematic, and it's just sporadic, and it's just, it's just a bad idea. So we need to to improve that liaison uh, enormously, improve our coordination efforts, but the biggest thing we need to do is improve access. I mean, where the prob humanitarian problems are in Afghanistan is precisely where there's virtually no access, is in the south, where the conflict is worse. Um, so until we can restore access and restore uh, the ability to talk to all the actors, including the Taliban if necessary, um, we're going to struggle in Afghanistan and that's going to be part of the response. Yeah, and let me just answer two of the questions and one comment back on something you said uh, in response to me. Um, in, 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 terms of, in terms of informal information systems, uh, there, 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 is a, there is a failure in the existing structures, um, and a lot has been done to consider how it could be improved. There was a major study done by Shep Foreman in his outfit at, um, at uh, NYU, um, about five years ago, commissioned by DFID, uh, went into the UN. So about a reform in terms of uh, mobilizing, perhaps uh, to get beyond the, the blockages of information and coordination that exist inside the UN, something external. And I think we have to consider, we have to consider that. Again, at least um, until we get uh, some of the major problems in the UN system resolved. Of course, one of the most important ones is the Security Council itself, the, the limited number of participants in the Security Council, and the way in which the Security Council powers, sorry, the way, can you hear me up there? Yeah, sorry. The way in which the UN uh, Security Council no longer reflects the, the division of power in the world. It's an archaic um, um, setup that, that, that really does urgently need to, to change and involve more of the developing world in its representation and perhaps a more balanced representation of Europe. Um, around Afghanistan, um, I think it's a terribly difficult and intractable situation in many ways because it's not 
a humanitarian crisis alone, but it's, a, it's an ongoing situation of warfare. And an awful lot of what happens in Afghanistan is influenced by the nature of the military conflict and the role of the alliance powers and, and again the United States in its war on terror as it projects itself into Afghanistan. So I think part of the question actually was what, what's the wider solution to the conflict in Afghanistan and I think that means talking with the Taliban um, because there will not be a military solution and humanitarian crises will continue in the country until some political solution is found. And that just brings me to the final comment in relationship to your, 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 your own return to me around the question of humanitarian space. And I agree with you that uh, because of the problems of the Iraq war, the war on terror, uh, we can't abandon the idea of international intervention. Um, I think that when there is a clear international will to intervene, then uh, we have to look at how is that accomplished militarily? And there, besides, and maybe more important than the responsibility to, to, to protect uh, being enforced internationally, are internationals understanding what the responsibility to do no harm also means. And, and, and here, when military intervention is followed by the dismantling of a state, this is what we saw in Iraq, uh, much different than the kind of occupations that were achieved um, after World War II in, in Germany and France, then we have humanitarian crisis of great depth for decades because the price of dismantling a state is very, very high. Okay, um, we're going to have three quick, quick questions and then uh, a return to the panelists. This gentleman, there was somebody here who had their hand up, that gentleman there, and where's my woman in the far corner? Okay, please be brief, because we're uh, almost at time. My name is Jim Kennedy. A very quick question. Uh, Sir John, you made, I do not to belabor the point of uh, libertarian humanitarianism, but uh, in order to highlight the nuance of your position uh, as contrasted with that of Professor Putzel, and I have to cite a specific name here, Robert Shapiro. He would seem to be right in the first line of targets. However, in his recent book, uh, just recently published, uh, Forecast 2020, he takes a, a, a much more uh, a, a subtle view. And it, he, the reason he's important is because he advises uh, leadership in the major uh, political party in America. So I had to bring up that name. And so, so you could highlight your position. I'm Nick Goodman from Christian Aid. Uh, I'm very glad uh, that you brought up and said uh, how the UN is going to be and sees the great importance of working with local actors, local NGOs, local government uh, in uh, the response work. I mean, for us, we see that it's absolutely key uh, to the success of humanitarian operations. After all, it is the, the local people who are there providing the first line of response. And equally, I'm glad to see the developments of the SURF uh, and uh, the wish to work more uh, in partnership. However, the way in which we have seen the SURF working actually almost excludes, by definition, local actors uh, because they don't get access to the top tables. Uh, the way in which the cluster systems work, uh, national organizations, local NGOs 
are not part of them. They can't be part of them, and it is always the internationals uh, who come in and see their role as coordinating. Uh, I'd like really to ask you how you are trying to work to uh, bridge that gap and to really make sure that the local actors are seen at the forefront of humanitarian response. here at the LSC, and my question uh, was related to your comments on Darfur and the DRC, noting that the humanitarian response has been successful, but that security issues remained. And I was wondering, because the security issues are so fundamental, providing food without security doesn't, doesn't actually work, um, whether there are any OCHA efforts to integrate security issues and to provide for those um, at the same time as they Right. Um, uh, on the first point, I think probably all I can say is I'd better read Robert Shapiro's book so I can understand exactly what it is he's saying, especially if he's advising the U.S. leadership, as you suggest. Yeah. <laughs> um, on the, uh, your, your point from, from Christian Aid, um, I mean, I administer serve, so I'm bound to say I think it's a good thing, <laughs> but I think we have done reasonably well uh, in general, but we need to, to go on working on that. Um, obviously, as you know, one of the big problems of the SURF is it's not available to NGOs. The Central Emergency Response Fund, which is this new fund we set up a couple of years ago, it's not available to NGOs, which is not because we don't want it to be, actually. I'd love it to be available to NGOs, because the General Assembly, I think, would have difficulty accepting that, because whether you like it or not, uh, quite a lot of developing countries don't view NGOs with great enthusiasm, because they're not sure who they're accountable to. Um, so they, they have a problem with that. So um, and I'm not sure we can fix that particular problem. Um, I think the other ways we can help to fix the problem you were talking about is by having more pool funds at local level, which is, is something which is happening increasingly. So in virtue of all the long-running um, conflict situations, we have either an emergency response fund or a humanitarian response fund, which is administered locally and essentially intended. I mean, they're probably you know, $5 million or something like that intended to be given to, to local NGOs um, and maybe international NGOs working there who don't have access to other sources of funding and, and they, therefore they, they can be close to the ground and close to the ground decisions. And then there are much bigger pool funds locally which are being established called common humanitarian funds and they exist in Sudan and DRC at the moment but they will be rolled out elsewhere as well which may be more like 50 or 100 million dollars and again uh, they are available to any actors on the ground, the agencies, um, international NGOs and local NGOs. So I hope they will help to fix some of the problem you're talking about because I recognize it is a real issue. The other way it can be done is if, if the local or international NGOs on the ground work with the agencies in, de in developing projects which can then be put by the agency to the Central Emergency Response Fund and then actually money from SURF goes to a lot of NGOs. It just goes at the end of the chain as implementing partners, not as, as the direct recipients. So... You know, I'm conscious of the problem, but I think there are ways we can help to fix it without being able to fix it uh, entirely. Um, and on Darfur and the DRC, uh, how do we integrate security and, and humanitarian responses? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure we can. I mean, that's the problem. I think if we try to do that, that's when you run into problems. So I would say we need to keep them separate, keep the humanitarian response unpolitical, responsive to needs, not security-driven. But at the same time, and this is what I've tried to do, keep the pressure on the politicians to fix the problems. Because they don't fix the problems. We're just going to be there forever doing it and, and then going to be guilty of prolonging the conflict in a way, um, unfortunately. So, uh, you know, it just requires pressure on the politicians to take it seriously. I mean, not just the international community, but the local politicians. 
you know, get their act together, get off their backsides and solve the problems because that will then remove the need for the humanitarian help. Just, just a, a, a final comment um, because I know we've run out of time uh, on that last point. And I think that you're absolutely right and uh, to, to, to keep uh, that principled struggle alive, to keep humanitarian and military intervention separate. We're lost if we don't wage that battle. In the DRC, it seems to me the big problem is the lack of a determined Chapter 7 uh, response in the Eastern Congo. For as long as the former Rwandan government forces who were at the core of the FDLR's communities in the Eastern Congo remain uh, in, the, in, in that space, there will not be a possibility for peace in the country. And here, uh, I think the, the UN mission, which is the second biggest in the world, um, um, has, has failed probably because its member states have, have not made it an even bigger mission and a more forceful one to solve that problem. And that figure that you said was right at the beginning of your talk with um, nearly five million dead because of the war in, in uh, 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 not, not, not from direct violence and in Congo is one of the most incredibly uh, disturbing humanitarian crises that we've had um, um, since the end of the Second World War and, and so I think here there is a need to toughen up the military solution in the DRC and until that's done there won't be any peace. Okay, we're out of time, and uh, I won't even attempt a summation. Uh, I think the respondents uh, both did a wonderful job in addressing all the concerns. Would you um, join me in thanking both Sir Holmes and Professor Putzel for their talks? Today?